Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on new and emerging therapies for HIV. With us today is our author, Dr. Ethel Weld, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Pharmacology, and Molecular Sciences in the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss the potential clinical use of the co-formulation of BIC, TAF, and FTC, that's bitegravir, tenofovir, alafenamide, and emtricitabine, as compared to other options. Describe switching regimens for virologically suppressed patients and a potential role of duotherapy with dalutegravir and rapivirine, or DTG-RPV, in the treatment of HIV, and identify those patients in whom the clinical use of ibilizumab can be considered. Dr. Weld has disclosed that she has served as a co-investigator for a clinical trial sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline, Vive, via a research contract administered by Johns Hopkins. She has also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products, with the exception of the properly identified late-stage investigational drugs that are the focus of this program. Dr. Weld, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you provided a lot of information about promising new treatment options for patients with HIV infection, both recently approved therapies and those still under investigation. What I'd like to do today is focus on how some of that information can be applied to clinical practice. So if you would, please, Dr. Weld, start us off with a patient scenario. All right. So our first case is a 62-year-old woman with HIV that was diagnosed 12 years ago at baseline before any treatment. Her HIV viral load was 500,000. Now it's been undetectable, less than 20 copies per ml for years. Her CD4 nadir was 32. It's now 485. Her virus was previously well controlled on a Favarin's TDF FTC, but with the subsequent development of the K103N mutation after some periods of patchy adherence in the past. And she also has multiple comorbidities. So she has coronary artery disease and is status post a recent myocardial infarction with stenting. She has type 2 diabetes and is on metformin, has diabetic neuropathy from that, and also has a, an elevated hemoglobin A1C at this time of 9%. She has peripheral vascular disease with recent stenting to her lower extremity occluded vessels. And she also has a history of chronic hepatitis B virus and atrial fibrillation with RVR. She's maintained on amiodarone. A recent ECG showed anterolateral Q waves and a QTC interval of 490 milliseconds. So despite kind of all of these comorbidities, her GFR is still above 60 milligrams per ml. She does have HLA B5701 genotype testing that is positive, and she's currently taking darunavir, ritonavir, and TDF-FTC combined tablet and is requesting regimen simplification and a single tablet regimen if such a thing is possible. A very complicated patient, doctor, but let's start out with the last thing you mentioned. She wants a single tablet regimen. Which single tablets would you consider for this patient? 
Yeah, so the recently approved single tablet regimens that are available include Bictegravir TAF FTC co-formulated, Dolutegravir Abacavir 3TC, Rilpivirine TAF FTC, and Dolutegravir Rilpivirine. And there are also other single tablet regimens such as Efavirin's TDF FTC and Rilpivirine TDF FTC that have been on the market a little bit longer. Bictegravir TAF FTC is a first-line regimen per the DHHS most recent guidelines and therefore is what I would here prefer and we can talk about some of the reasons why. It's a good option for treatment of her hepatitis B chronic infection in addition to her HIV as both TAF and FTC have great activity against hepatitis B virus. So importantly, she should be counseled not to discontinue this therapy suddenly as sudden withdrawal of hepatitis B active antiretrovirals can lead to resurgence of fulminant hepatitis B, which can be fatal in some cases. This led to a black box warning in the U.S. for these agents. So switching this patient's regimen, what are the key factors you'd consider? Well, this patient does seem to have several cardiovascular risk factors and proven cardiovascular disease. So we should try to minimize her cardiac risk with the regimen that we choose. Protease inhibitor-based regimens do raise lipids, and she has a history of MI. So that's something I would maybe try to stay away from. TAS-based regimens do have less renal and bone toxicity than TDF FTC-based regimens, and diabetes is already compromising her renal function. TAP is available to her because her GFR, her glomerular filtration rate is still above 60, and TAP-based regimens are okay for anyone with a GFR above 30. Her HLA B5701 testing was positive. What's the significance of that? The HLA B5701 genotype identifies individuals who have an increased risk of hypersensitivity reactions to the drug abacavir. And the reason this is important is if you have an increased risk of abacavir-induced hypersensitivity reactions, these can be fatal reactions. It is not recommended that you be on a regimen with abacavir in it. And this is the reason why the fixed-dose combination tablet with co-formulated dolutegravir abacavir 3TC would be contraindicated in this setting for this individual. What about the recently approved rupivirine single-tablet combinations? Rupivirine taf or dolutegravir-rupivirine? Would you consider either of those appropriate for this patient? So it's true that Rilpivirine TAF-FTC is a very small tablet, one of the smallest, which is attractive for many of our patients because it's arduous to swallow gigantic pills. So given her prior history of high viral load, Rilpivirine TAF-FTC would have been contraindicated as initial treatment for her, just given higher rates of virologic failure defined as a rebounding viral load on therapy in the early trials comparing Rilpivirine to efavirenz. However, for switch, for a patient who's already virally suppressed, given the new data from the SWORD-1 and SWORD-2 trials, which demonstrated excellent durable viral suppression, with dolutegravir rilpivirine duotherapy once patients are suppressed, even if they had had a high viral load at baseline, it is reasonable to switch patients to rilpivirine-based regimens, especially when it is given in conjunction with a very highly potent drug such as dolutegravir. 
However, my hesitation with ropivirine-based regimens in her, given the patient's chronic amiodarone, which is a QTC-prolonging medication that increases the risk of torsade de pointe, which can be fatal. It's a heart arrhythmia that can end life. So it's advisable to avoid ropivirine because ropivirine was observed to prolong QT interval when given at slightly higher doses than those contained in this combination tablet. But basically, the potential for additive QT prolongation with two QT prolonging drugs in the context of someone who already has a long QTC would make me wary of ropivirine-based regimens in her. One last thing I want to ask you about this patient, doctor, and that's about her diabetes. How does that affect your choice of agents? Diabetes is, is of high concern in her. She has several issues that are chronic issues that are going to be exacerbated by her diabetes And it's also important to avoid adverse consequences of the treatment of diabetes. Metformin levels would have been increased by dolutegravir. So this is a patient on metformin. And the reason for this increase is because dolutegravir inhibits the renal drug transporters that are called OCT2 and MATE1. Metformin is a substrate of these. It is cleared from the body by these transporters. So having dolutegravir inhibit them means that metformin builds up. It's been seen in vitro and it's been seen in clinical studies. And all that that means is that her total daily dose of metformin would need to be limited to 1,000 milligrams while on dolutegravir. In vitro, bactegravir does also inhibit these transporters, but there was a recent pharmaceutical company-funded phase one study that looked at healthy volunteers, so people without HIV, who were given either placebo or bactegravir TAF-FTC, and then were also given metformin. And this found no significant pharmacodynamic consequences, in other words, no significant hypoglycemia which is the main concern from elevated metformin levels among those given the bactegravir-containing regimen relative to those given placebo, though it is true that metformin levels were increased in the bactegravir folks. So they were 39% higher. However, because there was no clinically significant consequence that they found, they recommended against dose adjustment of metformin when given with bactegravir TAF FTC. Thank you for that case and discussion, Doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Ethel Weld from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this EHIV Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. EHIV Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with HIV and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for EHIV Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about EHIV Review, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. Our guest is Dr. Ethel Weld from the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins, and our topic is the clinical use of new and emerging therapies for HIV. So to continue from our practice-based perspective, let me ask you to bring us another patient scenario, if you would please, doctor. 
The next case is a 40-year-old virologically suppressed gentleman who's currently taking atazanavir boosted with ritonavir as well as combined TDF-FTC. He's been suppressed in his viral load for five years, but he did have a baseline viral load at diagnosis of 650,000 copies per ml. His CD4 count is 550. He has no history of antiretroviral resistance on initial genotype. He does have long history of untreated GERD, so gastroesophageal reflux disease. And he recently developed Barrett's esophagus, abnormal cells in his esophagus, prompting his gastroenterologist to begin twice-daily ranitidine. He presented to clinic complaining of an embarrassing yellowish tint to his sclerae, so to the whites of his eyes. He also had concerns about the cumulative effects to his body of being on three to four different medications for the rest of his life. And he does ask whether his number, his total number of drugs can be decreased. So this patient wants to switch to a simplified drug regimen. What are the key factors you need to take into consideration? So the first thing is that he's asking you to switch his regimen. This gentleman himself is the one who is going to have to vigilantly comply with whatever regimen you choose every day of his life. And he's saying, listen, this is high pill burden. It has side effects that are discomforting me and I would like you to switch. So that's the number one first reason. The second reason is the yellowish tint to his sclera is from elevated indirect bilirubinemia, which is a common side effect of atazanavir because this drug inhibits the conjugation of bilirubin. And what about his GERD? So his GERD at this point has caused damage to his esophagus and now does require therapy with acid-blocking medications to protect his esophageal mucosa. These medications do inhibit the absorption of atazanavir and some other antiretrovirals, primarily because a low gastric pH, in other words, high acidity, is required for optimal atazanavir absorption. But this can, in his case, dangerously decrease atazanavir levels and increase his risk of subtherapeutic levels of this protease inhibitor and virologic failure. So the challenge is a simplified regimen with a change in medications to avoid long-term cumulative effects, plus accounting for concomitant GERD therapy that impairs atazanavir absorption. What's the solution? Considering duotherapy is a reasonable option for him. Duotherapy. Which regimen would you recommend is the most appropriate for this patient? There's many duotherapy options and some are more preferred than others by guidelines committees. Dolutegravir rilpivirine is a co-formulated duotherapy regimen, which is currently available and FDA-approved. It's important to note with this that this does contain rilpivirine, which, like atazanavir, requires an acidic environment in order to be absorbed. So proton pump inhibitors like pantoprazole would be contraindicated with rilpivirine-based regimens. But a histamine 2 receptor antagonist like ranitidine can be co-administered as long as it's given four hours after or 12 hours before the rilpivirine. He does not have resistance to either of the components in this co-formulated dual therapy regimen, either dolutegravir or rilpivirine. He does have a history of a high viral load at baseline, greater than 100,000 copies, but is now virologically suppressed. 
So the previous conservative approach based on higher rates of virologic failure in those on relpivirine arms of early trials compared to those on efavirenz arms, especially among people whose baseline viral load was greater than 100,000 copies, was not to consider relpivirine as a part of a new or a switch regimen for these individuals. But accumulating data, especially from the SWORD-1 and SWORD-2 trials, which provided seminal information leading to this drug's approval and included 22% of participants who were age-defined initially, implying certainly a higher viral load, showed excellent durable viral suppression on rilpivirine and dolutegravir alone without significant rates of virologic failure. And this leads us to conclude that rilpivirine-containing regimens are reasonable to switch someone to who is already virally suppressed if they have no contraindications. There are long-term health considerations, particularly in the context of aging, which make two-drug regimens attractive, and they certainly are more attractive from the consideration of cost. There's one less drug in the regimen. They have not been compared to TAF-FTC-based three-drug regimens, only to TDF-based three-drug regimens. So that's an important thing to note. But overall, a two-drug regimen should be reasonable for this individual if spaced adequately from his ranitidine. Thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Weld. We've got time for one more patient scenario, so if you would, please. Right. So case three is a 32-year-old woman with perinatally acquired HIV. So that means she acquired her HIV from her mother, either in utero or perinatally. She presents the clinic for a routine follow-up. She has a history of being on many different antiretroviral regimens throughout her lifetime and has had several periods of intermittent and patchy adherence throughout, especially her adolescence, and now have the evolution of multidrug-resistant HIV with multiple genotypic mutations. A tropism assay reveals her virus to be CXCR4 tropic, conferring Maraviroc resistance. Her current therapy is Bictegravir-TAF-FTC in combination with twice-daily Darunavir-Ritonavir. She is failing on this regimen with a viral load of 50,000 copies and a CD4 count of 40 cells per cubic millimeter. Her exam reveals cachexia and oral thrush, and a flexible laryngoscopy confirms esophageal candidiasis. You've described a very sick individual. What's her likely prognosis? Yeah, patients with multidrug-resistant HIV have high mortality and high likelihood of disease progression. At this point, this patient has AIDS. Esophageal candidiasis is an AIDS-defining condition by WHO and CDC criteria. It also can sometimes lead to a dynophagia, pain while swallowing, making swallowing uncomfortable, and raising the utility of adjunctive non-oral antiretroviral strategies. Are there any treatment options you might consider for her? Ibolizumab, which has been granted orphan drug approval by the FDA, has been studied in several small trials of patients with virologic failure and multidrug-resistant HIV, and it does lead to a significant drop in viral load even when given as monotherapy. It should be combined with at least one other agent that is highly potent, like twice-daily darunavir-ritonavir or dolutegravir or bictegravir. But this patient, as, as you said in her presentation, has Maraviroc resistance. Maraviroc is an entry inhibitor. Ibilizumab is also an entry inhibitor. Isn't she going to have the same kind of resistance? 
So this patient has Maraviroc resistance as evidenced by her tropism assay showing that she has CXCR4 tropic virus. That means that her virus has shifted from attaching to the CCR5 co-receptor on the CD4 cell in order to enter it to switching to attaching to the CXCR4 co-receptor. This happens with patients who have been infected for a long time. HIV that is first acquired is usually R5-tropic and uses the CCR5 receptor during the early stages of infection, but may later switch to using either only CXCR4 receptor or both CCR5 and CXCR4, which is called dual tropic. In either case, Maraviroc only works for patients whose virus attaches to the CCR5 co-receptor. Ibilizumab retains activity against virus that is resistant to Maraviroc, in other words, CXCR4 tropic virus. When patients are given Ibilizumab as monotherapy, they do develop treatment emergent resistance. But in her case, you will be giving it in combination with other agents. So ibuprofen is a good option for her for salvage therapy of her MDR HIV with virologic failure in someone who really has few other options. And again, the newer entry inhibitors do have advantages over Maraviroc and Infervitide, the older entry inhibitors, mostly boiling down to being longer acting and having decreased dosing frequency enabled. Dr. Weld, the new drugs that you've talked about today and the late-stage pipeline drugs you described in your newsletter issue, in general, how did these agents impede HIV entry into the cells? Yeah, so just to review the three steps used by HIV in entering the cell and how they can be targeted with different types of entry inhibitors. The first step is attachment to the CD4 receptor and binding to that. And the drugs that inhibit this are ibilizumab, which is now FDA approved, and fostemsevir, which is not yet approved. The second step is co-receptor binding. The drugs that interfere with this step are Maraviroc, which is approved, and Pro-140, which is not yet approved, but is in the late pipeline. The third step is fusion with the cell membrane and infusion of virus into the cell, and the medications that inhibit this step are Infervitide and Albuvertide. Albuvertide is not yet approved. Thank you, doctor, for that review and for today's cases and discussion. Before we wrap things up, let me ask you for your opinion on the future of HIV treatment. What do you expect it'll look like? So I think the future of HIV treatment is going to involve a shift away from the stigmatization of individuals with HIV and increasing recognition that undetectable people do not transmit the virus, that the U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable campaign, which has been embraced by the CDC, the WHO, and several other organizations based on the primary evidence. The treatment strategies that move away from requiring adherence to daily pills, I think, are going to be coming more into play. All the intrusion into daily life that daily pills can entail is something that I think the biomedical industry is going to have to contend with and get around, especially for chronic illnesses that require lifelong therapy. I think that implantables are increasingly going to get around some of the concerns with irreversibility of side effects from long-acting injectables. Long-acting injectables are going to increasingly be studied as PrEP and potentially co-formulated with long-acting injectable contraceptive options, which is what voices from the community are calling for. And then 
functional cure, boosters of monoclonal antibody cocktails with boosters of long-acting injectables to thinking about conceptualizing repeated boosters of injectable agents as kind of leading to functional cure in a way that they don't require daily medications. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Weld. Let's review what we've been discussing today in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the potential clinical uses of BIC-TAF-FTC, that's the Betegravir, Tenofovir, Alafenamide, and Emtricitabine co-formulation. Mainly, BICTAF-FTC is recommended as a first-line regimen. So it's a first-line option that can be given as a single tablet. It's highly potent, can be given without regard for co-administration with food or not being administered with acid blockers. It is a great option for co-treatment of co-infecting hepatitis B because PAF-FTC is active against hepatitis B. It's a great option for people who cannot take a bacavir because of their HLA-B5701 genotype that are requesting a single tablet regimen. It's a good option for people for whom rilpivirine is contraindicated for whatever reason. It's important to emphasize dolutegravir in a single tablet regimen is not yet available co-formulated with TAS, whereas bictegravir, which apparently retains potency similar to dolutegravir, is co-formulated with TAF-FTC. So TAF-FTC being a renal and bone sparing option, that's an important consideration as well. And in virologically suppressed patients, what's the potential role of duotherapy with dolutegravir and ropivirine? There are many advantages to a two-drug regimen approach, including lower costs because there's one less ingredient. This can be crucial, especially in resource-limited settings where affordability is really determined by amount and number of active pharmaceutical ingredients in a regimen. Fewer side effects. If you have fewer drugs, you have less potential for drug toxicities and possibly improved adherence to the regimen due to lower toxicities. So these are all very important, especially given that now with improved mortality rates when lifespan for HIV-infected individuals approaches lifespan for HIV-uninfected individuals, people are going to be staying on antiretroviral treatment for much longer than previously. So taking into account the cumulative burden of antiretrovirals over the course of a lifetime and trying to minimize that is important. However, this all needs to be couched in the fact that resistance on duotherapy is a potential concern, though it was not seen in the SWORD trials and other recent duotherapy trials, particularly those involving dolutegravir plus 3TC, which is anticipated to become available in the near future as a duotherapy regimen. These have to be rigorously studied in ongoing and future trials. And I think at this point, we are ready for duotherapy as switch or maintenance regimens, but potentially not yet as duction therapy. And finally, identifying patients who can be treated with ibilizumab. So we discussed the use of ibilizumab clinically in patients who have multidrug-resistant HIV with virologic failure. And I do think it's important to expand the armamentarium for those patients who have few options. And again, just to highlight that it can be used in those who do have Maraviroc-resistant virus. It is also an entry inhibitor, but can be used in those situations. 
So just to mention that the long half-life of many of the emerging entry inhibitors, both those recently improved and those late in the pipeline, means that they have potential to be co-formulated or co-administered with other long-acting antiretrovirals in combination regimens in the future. Dr. Ethel Weld from the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV review podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, available online to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, HIV specialists, OBGYNs, infectious disease physicians, and others involved in the care of patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.